Sweet. So then what's your rating for this then? Did you already mention that? I gave it an eight and a half. Oh my God. Why did I not hear that? I was listening to you too. Like, yeah, go on, go on. So rating. Like, don't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Plot Devices. We are coming from your intergalactic salutations of celestials. You don't know what that means until we talk about Eternals, which we will later. I know that's why you came here. We're getting to it. My name is Brandon King. I am one of your hosts for today, alongside Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today? Right there with you, living in celestial space. Cannot wait to talk all things Marvel and Eternals when the time comes. We have important things to cover before we get to our movie segment, but you know me. I'm already waiting for that conversation. We're literally going to be starting off with a space topic, but we'll get to that after we introduce Samantha and Corvaya, our other co-host for today. Sam, how are you today? Great. I'm happy to hear that we have this unintentional space theme going on so far. So I'm I'm here for it. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's actually just pop right into it. Um, you know, the turtles is obviously going to be a thing and there's dangers out in space, one of which is our very own moon. Ha! Huh? Okay, Roland Emmerich's back. We're going to talk about that. Uh, so yeah, for all of you Roland Emmerich diehard disaster fans uh, who have been waiting for his new film, Moonfall, we got a teaser about it a couple months ago. We just got the first full trailer released online this week, and uh, it is something. The trailer sheds a bit more light on the unseen forces that cause, yes, from the title, the moon to fall out of orbit, potentially colliding with Earth and killing us all. Halle Berry stars as Joe Fowler, a NASA director who teams up with an astronaut played by Patrick Wilson, and a conspiracy theorist played by Game of Thrones' as John Bradley to save the Earth from imminent destruction. Charlie Plummer, Kelly Yu, Michael Pena, and Donald Sutherland all round out the cast. Moonfall will hit theaters exclusively on February 4th, 2022. Noah, I want to go over to you first. How familiar are you with, with Roland Emmerich, and what did you think of this Moonfall trailer? No kidding. A brand with disaster movies. You got 2012 on there. You've got uh, the, the day before... I'm sorry, the day after tomorrow, which I actually rewatched this week. So, so funny that, uh, this topic came up. I think that I'm, I'm a little too joyous about this kind of style. Like I'm very happy about, um, this disaster movie that has to do with the moon crashing into earth or the moon releasing some kind of entity that's going to come and wreak havoc on earth. I wouldn't call myself a disaster movie fan, but my history with disaster movies and my feelings towards them would prove otherwise because I always love them. I love major destruction. I love seeing um, the White House just crumble as a tsunami just washes over it. Um, I, I guess I'm just a fan of seeing all this man-made, you know, monuments and structures just come crumbling down by mother nature and all these other natural catastrophes um, when it's, you know, over-dramatized in a film. Other than that, honestly, I've sat down to watch Independence Day multiple times. I've never seen it all the way through. So, you know, one of the most iconic movies, um, I've actually never seen it all the way through. But Moonfall, it's not entirely new, right? Like, you know, Alien, Moon, something happened there that was kept secret. Now it's unleashed. I'm excited about it more than I think the general public, because when I saw the trailer in theaters, I heard people behind me be like, that's going to suck. And I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> it's a movie about the moon, like colliding with earth. Yes, I will see it. And I'm also a big Halle Berry uh, fan. So I would love to see her in this style of movie. That's funny that somebody, you overheard somebody saying that sucks about a trailer. Cause last time I heard that, that was for Clifford. And I'm like, eh, I don't know if they're wrong. Next but <laughs> week, by the way, next week, by the way, 
I know, right? But just to piggyback off of Noah, in a completely opposite direction, I'm actually not a huge fan of disaster movies. So I, seeing disaster movies always makes me kind of sad because I'm like, these people have literally no hope. There's no way that they could survive this. And somehow the main character and the camera guy always survives. But anyways, you know, with Roland Emmerich's stuff, I actually think it's hit or miss for me. Love Independence Day. Love The Patriot. Godzilla's great. I normally love historical time periods in movies when it has to do with like world wars and things like that. But Midway, I just didn't like that much. And that kind of keeps me skeptical going into Moonfall. But I think it looks really cool. I mean, the visual effects look amazing. And I'm hoping that the story looks good, too. And especially with this cast, I mean, I'll I'll see practically anything with Halle Berry in it. So, um, you know, I, I think it'll be really cool to look forward to. Let's get this out of the way. This looks stupid. This looks so <laughs> unbelievably stupid. How? I, I, look, I I remember the days when I was a cynical youth, and I still am a cynical youth. But in the days where I particularly was cynical youth of Roland Emmerich's filmography, like I couldn't appreciate Independence Day for what it was. I always liked 2012. Actually, like I always thought that was kind of a cool movie, um, but for various other reasons. But like I've grown to appreciate some of this stuff. I, you know, certainly Damned Tomorrow, 10,000 BC. Like there's value to that especially with his disaster projects. Let's not talk about his dramatic work, Anonymous, meh. But I kind of like this. Like, for how ridiculous and, again, apocalyptic this concept is, you bring up the point, Sam, of, like, no one can survive. It, if this happens, first of all, if it happens, everyone dies. But there's the idea of, well, how do you stop the moon from falling to Earth besides, you know, having Thor punch it into space? Like, that's not a thing that you can do feasibly in the realm of science. But who knows? In Roland Emmerich, we trust... And Wild you know, cro- the crossover, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you know what? The trailer looks fun. Like, Halle Berry, Patrick Wilson, they seem to have some okay chemistry. Like, oh, and the whole conspiracy theorist who knows the thing, reader from 2012, like, sure, getting that thing back on track. But, like, it looks interesting. Like, the effects look great as always, and sure, it'll be a great time in theaters, and the disasters will go crazy for it. Good technical feat. We'll see in terms of story. <laughs> always. And always. hopefully there's something new, because, you know, there's always survivors that make it out of Emmerich's works. Let's see if this one ends up being kind of a, you know, no survivors left kind of tale. And there seems to be that tease in the trailer of like, oh, yeah, there is something more. The mood is an alien or like something like that. So maybe that'll be the big twist. Let's move on then to our second main topic of today. Going back to one of our actual first episodes of the show where we talked about the initial casting for the live action Avatar The Last Airbender series. And now we have a pretty big addition to the cast, maybe the biggest addition so far. Daniel Day Kim has officially joined the cast as Fire Lord Ozai in the live-action Netflix Avatar adaptation. In the original series, Ozai is the abusive father of the character of Prince Zuko, who is bent on unifying the world through Sozin's Comet, through whatever means necessary. He's terrible. Watch the series if he happens. Uh, in addition, there were also some unconfirmed reports coming from Avatar News, who has gone through a lot of scoops regarding the Netflix series. They are reporting that the series will consist of 10 hour-long episodes, which, if this gets confirmed, would actually equate to longer than book one's runtime, which I believe is around, I think, eight and a half hours. So they would actually have more time to stretch it out, if that's the case. But again, this is unconfirmed. I thought I'd bring that up. Uh, Daniel Day Kim is, of course, no stranger to Avatar. He played uh, General Fong in an episode of season two of the original show. And he also reprised his role as Hiroshi Sato in the sequel series Legend of Korra. He joins the previously announced cast of Jordan Cormier as Aang, Hyoan Tio as Katara, Ian Usley as Sokka and Dallas Liu as Zuko. Sleepy Hollow's Albert Kim will act as showrunner of the series. Production is expected to begin sometime next year. Sam, over to you first. Uh, we know Daniel Day Kim has been building up a pretty substantial profile over the last decade or so as a pretty in-demand actor, whether it's you know, producer, you know, anything like that. 
Was this what you expected? And also, what are the implications of having Ozai, a character who was not in season one, pop up so early? Yeah, honestly, I I didn't really have a specific actor in mind when I thought of Ozai, and especially for the reason you just mentioned. We didn't see Ozai for quite a while in the animated series, so that was just surprising to me that, oh, by the way, here's our Ozai. Uh, but I am very happy about this because I love Daniel Day Kim. I think that he's a really great actor, and he kind of brings this mystery to roles, you know? I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to, like, like Hellboy. I don't know. It's just... You know, he's he's an actor who really does Mysterious well, and I mean it as a compliment. He has the look for it, too, because Ozai is very harsh. If anybody knows the animated series, he's a pretty bold character in, in all the bad ways because he's a really big villain. And so I think that just his facial features, I could totally see an Ozai looking like him. And so, of course, in, in The Creators We Trust as well with Michael Dante DiMartino, I, you know, I'm sure that whatever... Uh, which actors are attached to the project will align perfectly with what they wanted because we all know the drama that went behind Netflix and Avatar and and so on and so forth and, and so I'm I'm glad to to see a new casting in here it's making me excited about the live action will it be good I'm just hoping it's better than um you know poor M Night Shyamalan's version so <laughs> to to be continued right I think the biggest thing is going to be the wig because I was like the wig oh my gosh yes locked. you're uh, right. No- Sorry, Noah, over to you. Thank you. Daniel Day Kim from Lost. I remember him so well as um, Jan, the counterpart to uh, Sun in uh, in Fox's Lost TV show. And he was a character who never or rarely spoke a word of English, but was still able to convey so much emotion. And so when we um, decided we were going to cover this casting, I was thinking back, I was like, what do I know him from? Because his face is very familiar um, in my brain. And also he was in Hellboy. So he was in the newer Hellboy and he played that like cool, like cheetah hybrid kind of um, character, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually liked. I've YouTube that fight a couple of times just to see his transformation again. Cause it's actually like, it's pretty gruesome too. Uh, this is amazing. I think the cast list just keeps getting better. They haven't announced a casting that I've disagreed with or that I wasn't anticipating, especially waiting for those, you know, Dallas Lou and Daniel Day Kim scenes because Fire Lord o- Ozai He's the big bad in Avatar, and that's no secret to anybody who's a fan of the um, animated series. And so to see this character who starts off as just being, he doesn't, you don't have a face to him at the end of book one. It's really in book two and three that you get to know him and you start to realize what the evil Aang is up against. So I wonder what his presence will be in the first season, because, you know, I don't think it should be heavy. I think it should be, this is who he is, but, you know, we're not going to get back to him for a while. So he may not even be a main player. I think that's the biggest question is, you know, if these rumors are true, that season one of Netflix's show is going to be longer than season one of the original, what can you extend and what can you develop and what should you extend and develop from that? Uh, I've been a fan of Daniel Kim for a long time. Frankly, I think he's a better voice actor than he is a live action actor, but that's only because I've heard more of his voice acting, so I should say, from, you know, She-Ra and Ryan the Last Dragon and everything. But again, like, he was one of the redeeming parts of Hellboy. He's, you know, always been my maybe. He was in Blast Beat earlier this year, and I thought he was really solid in that. And again, he, he has that intimidation that he can bring to the role. I'm curious to see, again, what he and Dallas Lou can do. And it was actually cute earlier this week. Dallas Lou actually commented on the announcement on Instagram, just being like, oh, yeah, hey, dad, or like something like that. That, that was kind of cute. Again, trepidatious, everything behind the scenes. There's all the cynicism in the world behind this, but I really hope this is a sign of good things. Well, we'll have to wait for the writing. We'll have to see whether he's just screaming or if there's something else that they bring to the character. That, yeah. that first teaser, which is probably going to come like later next year, is going to mean the world. We're all waiting. 
uh, what we have been waiting way too patiently on, and this is my great transition, is Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande. They are going to be leading Wicked, and it's supposedly finally happening after... 17 years, if I'm doing the math right? Seven. Um, as confirmed by each of their respective Instagram pages, Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande have been confirmed to play Alphaba and Glinda respectfully, it, respectively in the long-delayed film adaptation of Wicked. Erivo, only an Oscar away from an EGOT, is best known for her work in Widows and Harriet's, which she was nominated for an Academy Award for, and most recently in the recent season of National, Gre- of National Geographic's Genius. Grande, however, is primarily known for her musical career. She's obviously been on Victorious and Scream Queens. She's going to pop up along with everyone else in Hollywood and Anna McKay's next film, uh, Don't Look Up, which is going to be on Netflix in December. The 2003 musical tells the story of the events leading up to Dorothy's arrival in The Wizard of Oz. A film adaptation has been in development shortly after the original musical uh, premiered. Delay after delay after director after director. We have now reached John M. Chu, of course, from In the Heights and Crazy Rich Asians. He is going to be directing and producing the project, which is set to go into production sometime next year. No release date has been announced. Sam, I want to go over to you. I know that you, know, you and Noah actually have experience with Wicked in some capacity. What do you think of that? We finally have leads to attach to this, and their names are not Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth. What do you think about this? And their names are also not Leah Michelle, which was also breaking the internet. Yes. She was, her, her name was trending, and people were just going nuts because of her you know, experience singing Wicked songs from Glee with Idina Menzel. Anyways, I thought this casting was really interesting because Cynthia Revo, I didn't know that she had a singing background. I knew her more for her drama roles as well, especially with Harriet. She's phenomenal in it. Um, and so I'm really excited to see her in some kind of musical role. Um, and then with Ariana Grande, I, I like her as an artist. And I, I just think that this is interesting because in my opinion, her voice is more pop and obviously it's because she's more known for that i mean i think her musical style is very pop uh, like and so i don't know how that's going to translate over to glinda i'm not sure if that's going to translate well because she has such a high high pitch in all of her singing because kristen chenoweth just has such a high pitch in her voice and so I don't know how she's going to kind of give off this prince, princessy vibe or rather if she's not going to go um, similar to Kristen Chenoweth's vibe, what kind of vibe is she going to go with uh, for Glinda? So I'm just kind of excited to see what she'll do in there. Uh, but I am excited to see that John M. Chu is directing it because I, I actually did really like In the Heights this past year. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what else he could do with a different musical, especially in a in a setting that, is fictional because I've known most of his stuff in, in real places and real roles. So uh, yeah, this will just be really interesting. And finally we're getting it after all these years. Like I'm looking forward to the music and how that's adapted to. To any of our listeners who are musical theater fans or even Ariana Grande fans, there is the Wicked cast recording on Spotify. Ariana Grande is on one of those tracks singing a song that. I did um, not know that. Thank you for bringing that up. Of course, but she sings Alphaba's song. She sings the wizard and I, and it is beautiful it sounds so powerful and ariana grande definitely has you know the the voice the power to belt like a like a broadway star that um that she is i mean uh broad or not broadway but musicals on stage um are no are not foreign to her i believe that um she has done work in the past for uh stage musicals and cynthia arrivo after hearing her voice in the bad times at the el royale I kept returning to a clip of her singing and I thought, you know, I want to hear more of this. And I realized that she was also a Broadway star. She was, or not also, but she is a Broadway star. Um, having starred in The Color Purple, I then listened to her voice um, across some of the popular tracks within that musical and just so gorgeous. So yes, we don't have um, 
while it's true we don't have Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth, the icons, the legends, it just felt right that these two came in to, to take up those titles. I mean, it, it would have been a shame if it was, um, if it was anybody else, you know, I really am happy and so satisfied with this casting. When that came out, we hadn't even expected any more news to drop for the week. And Brandon's Brandon kind of jinxed us and boom. <laughs> he, he put that it. in the universe. <laughs> exactly. He said, we're out of news for this week. We don't want any more. And then knock, knock, here's Ariana Grande and Cynthia Erivo, um in the live action of Wicked. I was literally 10 minutes away from walking into the Belfast screening, which we'll talk about next week. And I literally saw that. I was just like, well, great. We got more stuff to talk about. I can't wait for this. And to hear that Cynthia Rebo's one award away from that EGOT, I think that she's going to get it. This is going to be a beautiful project that I'm very eager for. For me, again, I have never seen Wicked. I've only heard the cast recording and I, you know, had friends who have told me every little plot detail and every little thing like that. I did partly read the book, weirdly enough, in middle school. Like, I remember reading it. I don't remember a lot about it, but I remember reading it. Uh, and I like the, I like the incarnations of the characters. I like the idea of, you know, what Wicked is, which is, you know, going back to what Wizard of Oz was going to be and where we got to that point. We don't have to worry about the singing at all. Uh, Ariana Grande is Ariana Grande. She could sing the phone book and it'd be great. And Cynthia Erivo between, again, I've seen Eclipse of Burn and Color Purple and Bad Times of the El Royale, which is criminally underappreciated and all of you should go watch it. But she sings in that too and she's tremendous. So we don't have to worry about that at all. As far as like the age ranges, the, you know, the type of performers they got, they clearly went for, you know, music over background talent, which is fine. It's, you know, a musical adaptation. You probably should go that route. I don't know if that's quite where I would have taken it, but I'm totally fine with this. They're both incredibly qualified. And from those Instagram posts, they seem incredibly humbled by taking this. So John and Chu directing, I'm in, but again, like the delays have that like cloud over. So please prove us wrong. With that being said, let's move on to our quick hit segment for the show. This is the rapid fire segment where each of us picks a topic that maybe we all haven't talked about in a group that maybe we're all just passionate about in our own weird little ways. We get one minute to talk about it and we'll rapid fire through it real quick. Sam, uh, do you want to start us off? Sure, I'll go ahead and get started. Mine's a super brief one, so three, two, one. We're going to continue from our last episode with this Halloween theme. I was a huge fan of Steve Buscemi's costume this year, and he actually dressed up as his What's Up My Fellow Kids meme, which I thought was hilarious so just for context with that meme it's actually from a 30 rock episode that initially aired in 2012 uh, called the tuxedo begins and he dressed up with his red cap on backwards with a skateboard and his music band t-shirt and i just thought it was hilarious and <laughs> I, I just thought that was something funny and you know it's that idea of an actor embracing the meme that they have been a part of unwillingly so i, I just thought that was really cool i just wanted to give that a shout out and time I will take my next, if you don't mind. Three, two, one. We have been looking forward to The Book of Boba Fett, considering it is going to be dropping literally at the tail end of this year. I don't know why Lucasfilm is doing that marketing, but we'll find out later this year. We got our first teaser trailer this week, and it looks great. Um, it's not super detailed, but if you've been a fan of what The Mandalorian has, you know, spoiler, Boba Fett is back in that. They have been exploring that post-sequel trilogy kind of thing. It looks great. I love the idea of him and Fennec, you know, exploring kind of the underground that Jabba has, you know, left in his absence. Again, spoilers for those of you who have not seen the original trilogy, but like, I love the visual aesthetic of it all. I love what Robert Rodriguez seems to be doing with it. I don't know how much more canon knowledge we're getting through this. We've gotten a lot of hints of, you know, Crimson Dawn and maybe, you know, kind of the remnants of Maul's syndicate or maybe like the, the source of the First Order. Those have been kind of teased and we get like visual hints throughout all this. But again, it's very much, here are some locations. Here is Boba Fett and Fennec Shan being awesome. 
I'm in for this. But again, I'm really hoping for that full-length trailer with the oh-my-god moment at the end that Lucasfilm is so well-known for. And time. That was, like, perfect timing. <laughs> I try to be. Noah, on to you with your quick hits. One minute. Okay, go. Um, Spider-Man, No Way Home. Is it going to be the longest Spider-Man movie that we get in the MCU? I don't know, but now I do because thank- thankfully the direct.com reports that a Brazilian ticketing service called Ingresso shared that Spider-Man No Way Home has a runtime of two hours and 39 minutes. This is the longest solo movie in MCU history, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be the best because let's not all forget that there are little mixed reactions over the story. Um, so there's still a little bit of speculation in the air. And can we really call this a solo movie if we have Doctor Strange in the mix and so many others from Spider-Man's past, even crossing over older franchises or older trilogies? I don't know. But now that we have that runtime, we know what we're getting our hands um, dirty in and we cannot wait to see what um, the friendly neighborhood bug is going to do with our Sorcerer Supreme. December 17th, Spider-Man No Way Home drops. And time. I appreciate your, uh, your end of time cue. And actually, the, speaking of Spider-Man, stay tuned for something in the, uh, in the next week or so. We might have something in regards to that. All right. Quick hits has been wrapped. We're going to move into our new releases for the week. We had a lot more. We're pushing, uh, Spencer and Heart of They Fall to next week. So stay tuned for that. Spoiler. I'm excited for both of them. But we're going to start off today with, you know, the coup de grace, the main event, if you will, the one that you all are expecting. Finch. Just kidding. I'm, I'm talking about that in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Eternals is, of course, the one who we're going to be talking about. Sam, you reviewed this for ASU Odyssey. Give us a quick rundown about Eternals for those who might not be aware. Absolutely, Finch. No, it's Eternals. So there's a lot going on in this. So I'm going to read the the quick synopsis that I got directly from Marvel Studios. So Marvel Studios Eternals features an exciting new team of superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, ancient aliens who have been living on Earth in secret for thousands of years. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, an unexpected tragedy forces them out of the shadows to reunite against mankind's most ancient enemy, the Deviants. So to be more specific, there are 10 new superheroes, and we have a really stacked cast here for these superheroes. We have Gemma Chan, Richard Madden, Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, Kumail Nanjiani, Liam McHugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridlaw, Barry Kyogen, and Ma Dong Sok. So excuse me if I mispronounce any of those names, but they are a stacked group. And we're going to start off with talking about the director's style here. All three of us saw the movie, and we know Chloe Zhao, who is um, who directed Eternals, also directed the Best Picture winner from a 2021 Nomadland. So very impressive rap that she's got going on so far. And with the director's style, I just I can't stop gushing about it. But I want to hear from you both first. So uh, Brandon, why don't we start off with you? Of course, like anyone was, you know, when we heard Chloe Zhao's name was attached to this, we all went, okay, what's going to happen with this? Because this was pre-Nomadland when, you know, 10 people had seen the writer and we, and those 10 people were like, oh, but you need to see the writer. And I still haven't seen the writer because I'm trash, but I did see Nomadland and it's amazing. And after seeing this, it totally makes sense to me why they got her. She is, she has such a particular kind of style that I think totally works with this. And we're going to get into the idea of, you know, how MCU is this or how isn't it? Be- I think, you know, Sam and I, we've talked about this for a little bit, like, this doesn't feel like an MCU movie, and I think in the best of ways. 
the style that Chloe Zhao brings to it, it's very, it's probably the most patient MCU film I've seen since Captain Marvel. Like, it reminded me of what Annabelle and Ryan Fleck did with that. Of, oh, it's, you know, superhero action and, you know, sci-fi spectacle. But then there's also, like, indie farmhouse moments, like, that kind of thing. And, like, they're done so well and they're paced throughout. It doesn't feel, you know, completely unnatural. So I was incredibly impressed by it. I think there's very few times where I felt like, okay, maybe she's an overheard head. Maybe there's like a couple of VFX sequences that I don't think totally work. But I was, again, really impressed by not just that it worked, but how well it worked. Uh, Noah, were you kind of on the same page? Yeah, up against other Marvel films, Eternals tells a story where entering this, you don't know any of the characters and you really don't know if you'll need to be on this story because who knows if this is going to be the beginning if the beginning and end of the eternal storyline, well, we enter in with like 10 fresh faces for a team. They pretty quickly go through these emotional moments that don't feel familiar to have all throughout the film. Just like uh, we just came off of, off of watching a uh, Shang-Chi and that lighthearted nature and circled back to a lot of comedy um, very quickly after each action sequence here, you get a lot more of just the emotional weight of what it means to be, something close to an immortal on earth. I didn't feel like any of those emotional moments were stale. I definitely was involved and with them when they were on screen. And it wasn't surprised. I, I wasn't surprised that this is done from a um, Academy awarded uh, director. And I think I also want to bring up that, you know, this is kind of one of the very few like proper team up movies we had in the MCU. And one that I think has the most unfair advantage beyond maybe Guardians and the reason I bring up Guardians is because I feel like this is the anti-Guardians. I feel like Chloe Zhao looked at what James Gunn did with this, where you, you're you dealing with characters who are very much more cynical, more you know nihilistic about the whole thing. And this is very much taking the opposite of it's more humanity driven. It's more about like the value of life and bringing that into it. And you can tell that, you know, vibrancy is brought through the characters. Like Chloe Zhao is tapping into every sense of humanity of these characters, whereas James Gunn was tapping into more of the absurdity of it all. And so I kind of thought about that as I was getting into like the second half of the movie. Yeah. And with Chloe Zhao, I mean, I can't talk enough about all of her good things and her style. I mean, her earthy tones were there in the cinematography as well. Like the movie isn't very vibrant. The, the, the superheroes costumes aren't bright colors either compared to some of the other uh, MCU films that we've seen. And, and I really liked that style, just kind of drawing out that, that natural earthy tone and everything. Um, and so not only is there a visual style for Chloe Zhao, but there's also this this human characteristic that she brings to all of her characters. Because with Nomadland, we saw a series of various different characters along Frances McDormand's character's journey. Uh, the name is escaping me at the moment, but uh, we see so many different characters and they're all so memorable and it's a very down-to-earth film. And I feel like she brought that in internals as well, because honestly, all these characters, in my opinion, are super likable and super relatable in, in their own ways. And they bring up lots of questions um, that have a lot of, you know, like moral values to them. And so I, I think that she did a really good job of kind of seeing each actor and and, you know, knowing their their plentiful talents and how they could adapt that to the characters they were playing. So, you know, I, I think that's something that's really characteristic, uh, characteristic of Chloe Zhao. And um, I thought that was pretty obvious. But speaking of the characters with the cast of 10 superheroes, I mean, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite. I don't know about you two, but for me, it's really hard. Uh, I guess I would personally go with Druig actually as like uh, one of the most intriguing characters that we have at the list, because 
he's kind of one of the first characters in my opinion in the movie who brings up some conflict within this dysfunctional family of superheroes and it's and i mean conflict because he disagrees with how the eternal should interfere with human interactions because you'll see it in the movie and i think it's in one of the trailers but they're specifically instructed to not interfere with human conflicts they're only supposed to help with deviant conflicts and so he kind of challenges that i feel like he's one of the first eternals who challenges that challenges that idea and he's the one that has um mind control powers so i just think him as a character super interesting super intriguing even though he's kind of a jerk but in terms of actors i thought angelina jolie was phenomenal as Thena. she completely owned the role and you know, I, I can't say enough about that. And um, same with Lauren Ridloff. I really enjoyed Lauren Ridloff in this. I, I only know her from um, Walking Dead. I think specifically she's in Fear the Walking Dead. Uh, but she is phenomenal in that. And then I absolutely loved her as Makari. And Makari is the really speedy one. Um, but just her personality is very witty and quick. And, and I just thought that she was really fun um, in, in this role. So uh, how about you, Noah? Who is your favorite? with the Eternals being like almost like immortal beings on earth, a lot of them are kind of careless over the activities of man. Cause they're really just there to destroy the deviants. And so looking at the dilemma of the character of Thena played by Angelina Jolie has this, uh, sort of, you know, internal flaw that is only present in the eternal characters that, you know, as we, as we experience the movie through her character, Angelina Jolie, I was a super fan before the movie. So just seeing her um, be pushed to the tens for uh, the type of limits this character has to go through, uh, it even enhances or it's complemented by Ma Dong Sook's uh, portrayal of Gilgamesh, who is the strongest of the Eternals. Those were my two favorite characters. I absolutely loved um, watching them both share screen time. And the whole cast just feels and acts like a family. And they have to because their assignment is to live on Earth for thousands and, you know, centuries, um, millennia. It, it was such a fun watch. Uh, I do have a hot take for some of the characters, but I'll, I'll get to that after we hear about Brandon's favorite. The thing is, I don't know who you pick. Like, this is one of the things about this movie that I was so impressed by is that there's 10 new characters, 10 new Eternals, minus, you know, Kit Harrington's Dane Whitman and, you know, a couple other secret characters in there. But, like, the main 10 are all new characters, and I love them all. Like, they're so dynamic and so unique. But, again, they all have this kind of aspect of humanity to them, which, again, I think goes to the diversity of the cast, which should be applauded, but I think more to the diversity of the characters. Like, again, Thena is, you know, this headstrong warrior who can control any weapon, but there's such, like, this kind of, you know, traumatic element to her. You have Cersei, who is kind of step up as uh, this uncompromising leader, and she doesn't really want to, versus, you know, Ajax, who kind of has another way of leading. You have, uh, oh, who is it? You have Icarus, who I thought they were going to go a completely different direction, I will not spoil it, but I was really kind of proud of the direction they went with it. I thought it was really ballsy. To me, I think the two that I would look at personally, I really liked Brian Tyree Henry in this. There's that moment with him and his fiance at their house. And this is also one of the first MCU characters being portrayed outwardly gay. That was, I think, one of the most human moments of the movie. That sense of love and compassion and worrying about what the next day is going to bring. That I think the stakes do a really good job in the movie, but I think that moment really solidifies where we are on an incredibly personal level. And the other one is Barry Keon, who I've always liked in a lot of things. 
it's the first project I've seen where I they love in this. Like, I love Droog as a character. I love that they don't make him out to be, you know, kind of the maximus to the Inhumans. Like, oh, I'm clearly the villain, and, you know, it's going to blah, blah, blow up in your face. And, you know, spoiler, it's much more complicated than that. Like, Droog as a character is really fascinating in his morality, and I like the kind of, you know, dynamic that he brings to that. Him, Makari, as well. Won't spoil it, but it's great. Uh, so that was kind of my thoughts on that. Noah, what's your quick hot take? My quick hot take is that I'm afraid, you know, what she does with the character, Salma Hayek as Ajax, I applaud because Salma Hayek in an MCU movie, yes, we find it like we got it. However, I have problems with the character. I feel like Ajax is a little too, yeah, I think they're a little too, you know, a literally, what, two-dimensional where they only have one side, um, one side to them and get you don't get to get more out of Ajax other than their role to the eternal team and to their overall objective on earth and by the time you know we're we're approaching that um that nexus point where the character is going to switch and we're going to get a new side of them um you know the story takes a turn so i think that was my problem was i i loved seeing salma hayek as this character but i wanted the character to do more other like they stayed very familiar to me with how they were introduced. And so I don't know how you two feel about the character, but I thought others went through transformations that we weren't able to see with Ajax. I think it's because with Ajax's story, it, it would be a spoiler if I go too in depth with it, but she's not in it nearly as much as I thought she would be. And so it's like, you know, maybe that's why it feels uh, the audience's relationship with that character is kind of distant compared to the others. We don't get too much insight into who J- Ajax is until Cersei really enters the picture as a leader. And again, I'm not spoiling, you know, whatever it ha- whatever happens with that. But I think through Cersei, we see, you know, the lens and problems that Ajax has to face as leader. And I think that kind of brings more of a character in perspective. But I agree with Noah that that unfortunately backfires a little bit because we only get to see so much of her and so much of, you know, where that kind of cosmic scale that she comes from comes into play. That's true, because, yeah, even, uh, you know, we, we find out that she has a lot of history as an Eternal as well. And, and I feel like we really don't see that in its scope and scale. I mean, yes, we are covering like 7,000 years with these 10 Eternals, but we we learn that like Ajax been involved much longer than that as like a leader. So, you know, it's just interesting to hear that, that and we never get to truly see it to its full scale. And regarding that scale, like, I think there's also the point to me, because one of the themes that I picked up on this was cycles of violence and cycles of, you know, enabling violence. And Ajax is, you know, for better or worse, a part of that system. Like, we see her connections to, you know, the Celestials who give the Eternals their orders. And, you know, again, without giving too much away, there's so much that is meant to those purposes of the Celestials that we're not supposed to understand. But I think Chloe Zhao does a really good job of bringing us as much into, you know, the universal stakes of it all and how Ajax is merely a small part of that and how she has to kind of wrangle everyone together, knowing that there are consequences to this and kind of going with it anyways. Yeah. And so, you know, this, this was a really good conversation on the characters and I feel like we could go on all day too. I know I have 10 times more things to say too, but um, there's 10 you know, characters for... and they're all interesting. <laughs> we could do our own episode of the characters alone, but we love them all. They're great. Uh, and so going forward with, these characters or the story or just anything about this movie what are our hopes for this with the mcu i know for me i can't wait to see more of these people i know this sounds like a broken record this past year slash this past phase of marvel in the mcu but i'm just excited to see more of literally any of them any of them (laughs) and so i'm hoping that we see 
more of their stories develop, uh, especially because arguably some of the characters developed a bit more than the others or took very drastic turns in their journeys. So I'm curious to see how they've changed over time or how much time might have passed between certain movies. Uh, so in terms of my host for the MCU, I'm curious about that. And there are also implications for Kit Harrington's character. And I, I really want to see more of what happens with him too. I'm glad you brought up Kit Harrington. We didn't bring him up because he's not, you know, an eternal, but he's actually kind of delightful in this. Like I love his presence in there. I love his relationship with Cersei. I hope he's also good comedic relief. (laughs) He is. And kind of in an unwilling way. Like it's not played up as like, Oh, Dave, what video is bumbling? No, he's not like, he's clearly a genius, but he also has this very kind of, you know, this history that, you know, comic nerds will geek out over, including myself. But like, there's also like really nice relationship between him and Gemma Chan and, you know, kind of how that plays into Icarus's thing. I like that kind of thing. As far as like the future of it all, I put five bucks. They're going to pop up in what if like season two of what if I think they're necessary in this because of how important they are to the MCU as a whole. Like you could play a whole thing of, you know, them interfering in this thing or them interfering in this thing or even the Celestials choosing not to do certain things with them. And I will simply say, please give me a, a Disney side series about Gilgamesh and Thea. Future of MCU. I hope they don't feel limited in how they need to line up like all these different, um, like layers and layers in the MCU. Cause we have Norse gods. We have witches. Now we have celestials who create suns that then give birth to like universes. And it's, they're so huge and so grand in scale that I just asked myself, like, I hope we don't always have to check in like with whether this makes sense across the board, because this was plain fun to watch. And I didn't need to know how it fit into the grand scheme of the MCU because this was the Eternals. It was by itself. And yes, there was mentions of Captain America of the Avengers team on Earth, but we didn't need to see them. We didn't even need to even need to spend time with them in order for us to understand and appreciate this this like solo story from a new team. Um, and also for the future, yes, I need to see a solo series with Gilgamesh and Thena because that will be beautiful to watch. I love that the relationship never pushed the boundary of like uh, romantic love. It was always just the love that you know when you have a best friend next to you. And and that was beautiful to see. Um, and then for the future of the MCU, let's see more solo stories. Let's see more stories that sure, they take place in the same world, but this is not including the characters that you know and love. These are new takes. This is a new style of showing them. And um, it'll bring in different audiences, I think, to a, to a wonderful, a wonderfully created um, cinematic universe. With the MCU, I was actually getting pretty tired of some of the, the styles where it's like the fight scenes to me, I, I'm, I'm going to be a hater real quick. It's just I felt like a lot of fight scenes in the past in the MCU were really, really forgettable. Like, I just think that it's mindless action. And to me, it's it's like, OK, big blockbuster film. I get it. But it just to me, I, I thought it was always pointless. And now these fight scenes in the last few movies, I feel like have been meaningful. And yes, the Black Widow one was long, but like with Shang-Chi is very meaningful. This one was also very meaningful. And I just hope that kind of keeps up. And same with the sense of humor. I really enjoyed the sense of humor. This film, I feel like it was fitting because I had problems in past MCUs where the comedic humor, comedic effect, whatever you want to call it, it, it kind of threw off the tone for me. Like it would be an extremely serious moment. And then all of a sudden it's like, ha, let's throw a quick joke in there. And I always thought it was weird. Like I was like, okay, that you got me at this point. Any jokes that they made in here were really subtly told and funny, uh, genuinely funny. So 
I kind of hope that in terms of style, the, that this stays in the MCU. I'm totally with you on that. Uh, and hell, look at look at Camille Giangiani's just for example. Like for as far as humor goes, he's hilarious, but he's not the comedic relief. Oh my gosh, I know because <laughs> it's funny how in a way he breaks the wall quite a bit. Not the fourth wall per se, but just like in the story because of him filming filming stuff throughout their adventures. I just thought that was really fun. One of uh, the best side gags in the movie. I love that. I, all of that stuff. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, with with that, I guess there's nothing left but to give our rankings. So, uh, gosh, for me, I, or not my rankings, but, you know, the ratings, excuse me. And with that being said, I guess we'll just move on to our ratings for the movie. So, gosh, where do I even start with this? I, I know for me, with my Odyssey online review, I actually gave it a nine. And the only reason I docked it a bit was because I was kind of mad about some of the character choices in the end. Um, this is something we could talk more off air on because I don't want to give spoilers to our, our viewers, but I just didn't really agree with what happened to some of the characters' stories in in the end. So for me, that was kind of distracting and the dialogue was okay sometimes. And that's why I give it a nine out of 10. Otherwise, really recommend it. Love it. One of my favorite Marvel movies right now. Again, I've been really impressed by the MCU lately. I know that, you know, there's been this kind of thing of has it gotten stale? I don't think so at all. But I think this year in particular has been very strong. And I think this, along along with WandaVision, I think is the one that I've been most impressed by. And I wanted to detract it points for, you know, whether it's a lackluster villain, whether it's, you know, some of the grander scale things that get lost in the shuffle, whether, again, it's some of the, the uh, character decisions towards, like, the third act. I could critique all of those. And yet, in the end, I respect so much of what this film does. It feels genuinely warm and welcoming, especially to audiences who maybe don't love that MC formula, who aren't as tied into it as, like, we all are. But again, there's great characters and graceful fight sequences and huge scale, and it goes for the fences, and I love that it tries. And for the most part, it incredibly succeeds. So I'm with you. It's a 9 out of 10. I know that seems like a bit high, again, with the Rotten Tomatoes consensus, but I stand by it. Speaking of the Rotten Tomatoes consensus, it stands at a 48% right now. I'm going to flip that and give this an eight and a half. It exceeded so many of my expectations um, and gave us a beautiful team to witness. And, you know, there were some comments about the action being like light in this movie. I loved every action sequence. And I found the one in the middle, especially to be, um, you know, the one that you're looking out for. So to any of our listeners, when you're, um, when you're finding them approaching the Amazon, just like keep your eyes and ears. Those are my favorite moments in the film. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, eight and a half from me. That wraps our Eternals discussion. Brandon, we will hear from you again as you are talking to us about The Souvenir Part 2 that is only in theaters. And you wrote a review for Odyssey, so why don't you tell us and the listeners what The Souvenir Part 2 is about? Uh, writing a review for Odyssey. Keep, that, keep an eye out for that in the next couple of days. I got busy. Uh, the Souvenir Part 2. This is the sequel to Joanna Hogg's critically acclaimed The Souvenir from 2019, which I admit I missed. Uh, thank you to the press people for sending me the link for the original. I'm glad I got to watch it. It revolves around Honor Swinton Burns' character uh, of Julie, who actually Honor Swinton Berg is Tilda Swinton's daughter, who is also in the movie. Tilda Swinton plays her mother in this as well. Uh, Julie is coming off of the events of the first movie. I'm debating whether I should spoil it or not. Uh, I will simply say that she has suffered an event in her life, in her personal life, that has kind of shifted the way that she looks at the world, shifted the way that she looks at herself. This takes place in the 80s. She's from a very kind of well-to-do family. She's in film school. She is uh, just starting the process of shooting her first feature-length film. And she is also having to deal with this tragedy in her life and kind of, you know, where her mind is at, kind of where she wants to go from here. And, you know, problems with her mother as well. She meets another film school actor played by Charlie Heaton from Stranger Things. Uh, Richard Iowade is also in here as kind of a classmate of hers who is also a director in here. 
kind of follows this six month period where she's developing her first feature film and where she goes as a result of that. I admit I don't love the first souvenir movie. I really appreciate it for what it is. Uh, Honor Swittenburn was a find in that. Like, she's tremendous in this, like, on her own. She does so much in that movie, and she has such this kind of graceful presence. Reminded me a lot of Kira Knightley in sort of sense. Uh, kind of, you know, the grace and poise of it all, but also this kind of tragic underpainting to it all. And she brings that back tenfold in this. Like, the reason I think the souvenir part two works better is I found the pacing better. I found kind of the instigating events better because when you follow Julie's steps in the first movie, it's very much kind of, you know, she meets this guy, they form a relationship, things happen, and the movie ends. And this is more, she has to come off of something. And if you have not seen the first souvenir, you are coming into it having to rely on her performance. And she really drags you into, you know, deep-seated depression, but also kind of like putting on a happy face for, you know, the sake of your film crew or for your parents or you know, the world around you and kind of, you know, subtly building yourself up. And I really appreciate her as a main character. She's one of my favorite main characters I've seen in like the last year or so. Also excellent is uh, Richard Ayoade, who I love in comedic stuff. I love his, you know, talk shows appearances and everything. He's great in dramatic stuff. Like between this and the first souvenir, I really wish he would do more with it. But again, he kind of plays this voice of artistic reason. You know, do what you want. Like the point of film and art is to, you know, express yourself and put it on screen and only you are supposed to be impressed by that. And I think that goes to a larger point with Souvenir Part 2 specifically of, you know, it's a movie about the value of expression through art and the toughness of expression through art. Like there is value in doing that, but it is tough to do so. And I found... You know, a lot of the movie is just her and her friends trying to, you know, get funding for a student film or trying to find, you know, a shot composition where, you know, a lot of the first film was about this relationship drama. And I think this is so much more interesting. Like, I have friends in film school or I have, you know, been on student film sets and it feels very akin to this. So I was really impressed by a lot of what Johanna Hogg was able to bring to a lot of this. And beyond that, she also brings this really great sense of meditative structure to it all. Like, there's this kind of plotting pacing to it. It's always, you know... Again, it's 1980s England, so it's always, you know, rainy and kind of overcast kind of thing. And there's this great kind of environment to drag you into. Again, it's slow. It drags. And if you are not a fan of the first souvenir, I cannot guarantee that you're going to love, you know, that again, but in a different instigating point. For me, it was enough. Like, I really appreciate coming at it from a different emotional angle, along with the great performances, along with the great direction. But this time I felt more as a result. And so it's getting a very strong eight and a half from me. Like, I really appreciated this. If you are a fan of the first souvenir, you're going to love this. If you weren't, I'd still say give it a shot. But I do think you need to at least have seen the ending of that movie to get it. But again, there's a lot to like about this. I hope it gets some love awards time, you know, as we say, for every film in the next you know, three months or so. But again, Joanna Hogg is a talent to watch. I hope it gets talked about her in directorial debuts because I think she's a fascinating filmmaker. And I was really impressed by this. So check it out. I think it's beyond, you know, kind of an artsy meditative piece. Sweet. So then what's your rating for this then? Did you already mention that? Oh, I gave it an eight and a half. Oh my God. Why did I not hear that? I was listening to you too. Like, yeah, go on, go on. So rating. Like, don't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I swear I was listening to you and I'm like, yeah, I don't know when you gave that. Okay, cool. So on to our next movie, Finch. So Brandon saw this. It's available on Apple TV Plus. So uh, Brandon, what do you think of Finch? Yeah, so Finch, this is, actually, we just talked about the trailer literally a week and a half ago, so the promotion for this has been, you know, fast and furious with this. Considering the film has been delayed a lot. It was in production, I think, as early as, like, 2016, I want to say, because I remember when this was first announced, and I remember thinking, oh, this is going to make me cry, and I'll explain the plot synopsis in just a moment. But, you know, that got announced, it was delayed from a Apple TV picked it up, Tom Hanks was on and off the project, and now... 
We're finally getting an Apple TV. It is the second full-length feature from Miguel Sapuknik. I apologize again if I'm mispronouncing his name. This stars Tom Hanks. He is a robotics engineer named Finch who invents a robot in the wake of this post-apocalyptic circumstance. Long story short, there's been a solar flare storm that knocks out, you know, the ozone layer. People die. The Earth becomes a post-apocalyptic wasteland aside from, you know, some burglars and, you know, scavengers and like that. And this one lone inventor played by Tom Hanks. But he also, for reasons that we find out later in the film, has a pet dog. And his prime directive, as he calls in the film, is to keep his pet dog alive. So what does he do? He creates a robot whose prime directive is to protect this one dog. They kind of start to learn from each other. He programs him to kind of be caretaker droid, voiced in motion capture also by uh, Caleb Blander Jones from Get Out and uh, X-Men First Class, among a bunch of other things. Long story short, uh, a giant storm comes through where he is in St. Louis. They have to pick up and move as far west as they can to get away from the storm. They try to go to San Francisco, where Finch may or may not have, have some history. And the movie just turns into this giant, big road trip movie between Finch, uh, the robot, who is later named Jeff, and his dog, who is named Goodyear. Uh, I will admit, you know, heard from the plot synopsis of like, oh yeah, an alien inventor who creates, you know, the first sentient AI to protect his beloved dog. And I was like, great, this is going to make me cry. And sure enough, I've seen a lot of comparisons as like, oh, this is like live action Pixar. And you know what? It's actually not that far off. Uh, if you've seen things like, you know, Short Circuit or, you know, even like Chappie from a couple of years ago, you've seen something like this in some capacity, or even WALL-E, like kind of the visual aesthetic of that in some capacity. To an extent, yeah, I'll agree. Like the film is not incredibly original. It's not all that deep when it comes to like, oh, what does being a robot mean versus being, you know, a human? Like it doesn't go into that much. It's primarily this kind of dynamic of, you know, Jeff the robot being this kind of simpleton figure and, you know, Finch is dying of radiation poisoning, so he doesn't have that much time to teach him, you know, how to trick for his dog and the complications that come about with this. And you know what? It's really good. It's actually really good. Like, it's genuinely fun. It's hilarious at times. Um, but I found, for the most part, it was this really kind of touching, you know, almost like wolf and cub type story, mentor and student type thing, kind of flipped on its head with the post-apocalyptic thing. Again, they don't do a ton with it. Like, they don't... They say a lot of what's been happening on Earth for the last, you know, decades since solar flares and everything like that, but we don't see a lot of it. It's primarily like, oh, you know, this shop has been broken into. Like, don't go into that because there might be, you know, people there. Oh, like Finch has a past, but we're not going to talk about it for a while. But it's just kind of this thing of Jeff being this kind of curious childlike being who has to go up against the very cynical Finch who Tom Hanks is doing a lot with this. He definitely has to have the lion's share of the exposition. He can, of course, make it work. He's Tom Hanks. He can, again, read the phone book and make it interesting. I want to talk about Caleb Landry Jones, who I have been a fan of for a while now for, you know, supporting roles and things like that. And this might sound like a hyperbole, but I think I'm confident in saying this. This is one of the best post Andy Circus motion capture performance site ever seen. I was floored. The very first scene you've seen of him is, you know, Finch's kind of head being like, you know, experimented on. But like you can tell as the eyes are moving and like the facial movements that are very limited but you can tell that Caleb is doing so much to make it, you know, emotional and childlike and wonderful. And that only continues on through the movie. He slowly makes Jeff sound more human-like. And I love, I love the idea that Jeff is slowly developing humanity separate from Finch. And I love the idea of, you know, that kind of being the subtlety of it all. But again, it's, it's super charming and it's done in a way where like the dog is also this kind of third, you know, kind of silent character. And overall, it's really solid. I would weirdly recommend families watch it. Like, it's dark and it's apocalyptic, but I think families can... There's nothing inappropriate about it, really. There's no, like, gore or anything. And again, like, that live-action Pixar thing is kind of apt. It's not completely original, but if you're looking for, you know, 
the next big thing in like motion capture performances, this is really darn good. Like I would not be shocked to have it pull like 11 monsters at the Academy next year for visual effects. Finch is a very easy seven and a half for me. It's incredibly watchable. It's short too. I don't think it's over two hours. And if it is, it feels, yeah, it's under two hours. Like it's, it goes pretty fast. Everything feels meaningful with it. Again, Kale Blendry Jones, keep your eye on him. Like this is the thing that will make you fall in love with him. And for a Tom Hanks kind of post-apocalyptic project that doesn't really feel original, I was impressed by a lot of by how a lot of it feels charming and real and you know legitimately emotional. So again, if you got time, check it out. I think it's worth a watch. All right. So now we will move on to our next segment, the segment that is still to be named. I think that's what it's called is to be named. But really, we're talking about TV shows. And uh this time we're gonna continue with our conversation on Made, the Netflix series. Uh, we are going to specifically talk about like our our wrap up because we finished watching it all three of us uh, and we're talking about episodes six through ten. Uh, so with Made, I mean, there's so much to unpack with it, but I, I would say like the standout episode for me was when her mom wrecked her hand. That episode was wild. So much happened within it and that was like a big climax slash finale to that entire episode because I felt like the acting was off the charts in there. So that scene was such a standout for me because the acting from Margaret Qualley and Andy McDowell was just phenomenal. I I couldn't believe when Alex was standing there in shock. And I thought that was super realistic and not outdone, not melodramatic whatsoever. And it, you know, that that's a scene that will stick in my mind forever. If someone asks me, oh, what'd you think of Made? I'll just immediately think of that scene. So for me, that episode was probably the biggest one. Um, I don't know how you all felt about it. Brandon, what would you say was your your biggest episode from six to 10? Episode six, really good. Episode six, the first one where I really felt like, oh, we're starting to like switch the narrative of where Alex is going as a character. And again, Margaret Qualley is totally owning up to it. One of my hot takes for Made is that I feel like it's like a sandwich where the middle is like very okay, but the bread is good. The bread's amazing. The beginning and the end of this series is phenomenal. In the middle, it loses me a couple times because it, to me, I just find it so wildly unrealistic that every turn in these episodes was a left in the middle. Like everything went wrong. Anything you could imagine, it went wrong, whether it had to do with her her daughter's birthday party or Sean's mental state or her mom's mental state. It's just, everything just took a wild left. And I don't know how realistic that was. Cause of course this is based off a of memoir, but it's just for me, plot wise, it just felt like it was okay. Oh, there's, there's so much going on. There's way too much. How can one can character handle all this? So that's actually one of my criticisms of it real quick, but um, Noah, just to go back to you real quick, what, what was your favorite episode here? Uh, yeah, thank you. I know we're covering the second half, but my personal favorite of the season comes around episode five. Um, this is a episode that really covers, um, uh, Alex as a character or Alex and a fellow maid are, uh, cleaning out this older home that has a little bit of superstition behind it. Like it used to belong to some, um, I don't want to call them a killer, but I believe it was, it was like a, it was almost like a haunting ghost story that the town all knew about this house. And so when Alex places herself in certain like crawl spaces, it triggers memories for her. And ultimately it helps her understand the trauma that she suffered as a child, um, witnessing her mother, who was a victim of domestic abuse, uh, domestic violence, sorry, from her father. And that like, that 
that allowed her to take so much, so much action, like immediate action to get her daughter away from this new grandpa figure, which is what her dad started to become, which to me, it, it was, it was a new, it was a new direction for um, Alex's relationship with the characters around her because her grandpa or her dad just started um, re-entering her circle because he was meeting with um, Alex's ex-partner who was trying to uh, get clean, get sober. Um, and he's sort of like a mentor. And then now you realize that Alex, when she ran with her mother as a child, she, they were actually running away from their abusive father. And so I think just the way the, the, way the episode lined that up with her cleaning the house that held those memories, but just thoughts for the second half of the show. Uh, I do agree with you, Sam. It, it's a sandwich show. So the, you get the, the, the bread and then the, the middle kind of becomes like, what is going on here? Like, why is, why is everything a dip? You know, when are we going to start going up this hill? Um, and I think that's one of the hard parts of watching the rest of this show was I, I kept on waiting for that turnaround moment just to happen a little bit sooner for Alex because she's so likable because she's a character who is like a real person who has all the right intentions and has all the right motivations to, to, to get her life together. But it's just resources are so limited to help pull somebody out of, a, out of that dark um, place um, when you don't understand the system. So. so I do want to bring up the thing of, you know, unlikable characters and things like that. I want to point out the two who are renting to her at the end of what was it? Uh, not Fisher Island or was it Fisher Island? Like the kind of like villa place with the garden. It was. You're talking about the birthday party, right? Yes, yeah. the birthday party. Yeah, that was not her fault. No, I, I was mad no. about that. Those two are just jerks. <laughs> I know. Was I was so mad about that. <laughs> like there are instances in the show where it's that thing of okay, Alex should have followed this, this, and this. like Alex is not a perfect character, and she's the only character who I think actually has legitimately redeeming qualities as a character. That is not her fault. Like, that is Sean being a jerk, who we will talk about in this. Like, the, the chances that Sean is given in this show are numerous, and I find it a little infuriating. I know that Noah also has some thoughts on Maddie. I'm really curious to hear those, too. No, I said, what about Maddie? That. Is she irredeemable? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, honestly, that's screaming with the whole Shamero thing. I mean, I brought that up last episode, but that bugged the heck out of me, which shows what a great actor she is. <laughs> oh, you would um, hate the Babadook. Don't ever watch the Babadook. I don't think I would, though, because horror, right? <laughs> I know what scene you're talking about, because I've seen that scene. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Well, now I got to look it up off air. Um, but, you know, I also didn't really like... Nate, if I'm being honest. Oh, don't Nate get me started like, on Nate. Nate was like a white knight in all the wrong ways. And I didn't like that. Cause it, you know, when, when it, when he kicked her out, like I understand those hurt feelings. I truly do. And you don't want to just be the babysitter. I totally get that. But then his speech was kind of lame. And I felt like it, it made it feel like everything he's done to this point wasn't genuine. It was just to hook up with her. You know, because it's clear he had a crush on her from the very beginning and she just never, you know, like was receptive of those feelings. But it's just like, yeah, it wasn't out of the kindness of your heart. It was just like, uh, you know, I really care about you and I hope that this works out for me. You know, nice that he gave the car, but otherwise all the wrong sorts of white knight. Oh, yeah. And that, that theme of the show of, you know, finding kindness and, you know, generosity in unlikely places like that is a theme throughout the show. And I like that we are given that. However, Nate as a character, like, I was so ready for, you know, a couple episodes to be in. I'm just like, oh, yeah, like, Nate's kind of a cool character. Like, he's, you know, kind of, you know, the last resort, but it's fine. But as that speech was happening, I just had kind of like a wartime flashback on, like, all the writings on the wall of, like, oh, he said this thing in episode three, and oh, he said this thing to Maddie, and ah, oh, darn, it all clicks. Like, he's he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. 
the cowboy illusions were nice coming well, from me, but, <laughs> but it's like at the same time, like that was, that was still such a, a turn off with Nate once that ha- all happened. But I will say uh, for um, a shout out to Regina, Regina's character development in this is phenomenal. I can't emphasize that enough, especially with, um, it's all the credit to the actor as well. Again, it would be um, Annika Noni Rose, and excuse me if I pronounced that wrong, but it's all credit to her too. I mean, she brings a really great depth to this character who honestly is really unlikable in the beginning because of the way she flaunts her rich girl status. But then honestly, she learns a lot from Alex and in turn, she learns a lot from her too. So honestly, I really love that fr- that friendship and how that developed throughout this entire series. And she was really integral in... Alex finally making a move and a stand for herself and moving on uh, and trying to overcome this domestic abuse that she has experienced. So, you know, I just think it's really, again, phenomenal friendship, love the character. Can't say enough good things about her. It was satisfying to see the way that they set up Regina and Alex's relationship with their first engagement or not the first, but one of the first being that Alex has to clean up this model baby room that exists in Regina's home. And it's not until, um, Regina goes through her divorce that she um, becomes a mother and she starts mothering a child and realizes that she needs the help that Alex steps in for that. I think um, just as a viewer, you know, I was satisfied because I was like, Oh, like I'm, I'm so happy that they're able to place these moments that make sense to why these two have the relationship that they have. It's not just, Hey, we like each other. And then we end up doing this new thing. It's like, no, there are connections from the first episode that you see um, paid off here in the very end we kind of teased how like the beginning and the end were really good. And and in my opinion, I really love the way that it ended, you know, just as a quick spoiler, if anybody did care to see this, I'm going to mention something really quick for like 30 seconds, but I I'm really glad that her mom didn't end up going with her to Montana because I think that was just really integral for her growth. And, you know, she, she needed to kind of find her own life. And even her mom said it best. It's your adventure. You got to do what you got to do. And so I, she really let her mom go and, and kind of be free in her life too. And, and it just felt kind of freeing. You almost felt that weight get lifted off her shoulders. Yeah. You mentioned the rewarding factor. And I think that goes towards one of my biggest negatives about this, which like you, you have the sandwich analogy. I have more of the roller coaster analogy where every episode feels like this is great. And then it tempers off and then it ends great. But then it kind of tempers off towards like the very, very end. And it does that every episode for, you know, 45 to 50 to sometimes an hour long. That ending is, you know, kind of like the secret ending of like a video game, so to speak. It's just like, you've been through a lot. We know this has sucked. But here, like, take a breath, like, be with this character, enjoy something good for once. And I was like, okay, great. I also have to say, too, real quick, with the cinematography, I also appreciated how it started the tone, the color tone in the cinematography was very bleak. It was very drab. Um, and I, I mean, granted, we're also in the Pacific Northwest, but it was just very drab. And then all of a sudden in that, like the last couple episodes where things are looking up, like those beach scenes were beautiful. The cotton candy sky and like the really vibrant beach scenes. It was like things had color again. And I, I was really happy to see that, too. I was going to make a joke. I was going to say that maybe we need a holiday special just to get have like an episode where it's only ups for Maddie and Alex because that final shot where we see them overlooking um, Michigan or wh- where did she move again? Can somebody remind me? Montana. Uh, yeah. She, 
uh, that final shot where they're uh, perched on that hill, just looking over Montana. Uh, it was so beautiful. And you want those beautiful moments to last with Alex and knowing that this is the end of her story. Of course it lasts, but that's all, you know, where's the holiday special? At? I want to see more happy moments between these characters. Uh, yeah. I'm ready for ratings when, when y'all are. I would go with like a solid seven on this. I enjoyed it. I personally feel like it was kind of overhyped. I mean, a lot of people were talking about it and gushing about it after Squid Game. This was like the next big binge. But I don't know, because there were parts of it where it wasn't like really consistent. I I didn't like that much. But when when the tone was right, it was perfect. I think it hit all the right notes when it was good. So seven, solid seven for me. I think it's a seven. I'm going to write jump right there with Sam. Copycat. No. <laughs> I don't know if I want to give it a six because I did really enjoy it. Don't want to give it an eight because I do have those negatives to say about it. But the, I think the biggest thing for me is thankfully, uh, or I don't know, you know, any of our listeners or people that we know in our lives um, who have found themselves in these low moments, it is really grueling. It is really what the hell is even in front of me? Like, what is this legal paperwork? What are all these systems? What are all these aid services? ignore the commercial behind me. What are all these aid services that I don't understand? And and for me, like th- those were the ones that spoke volumes. And so I, I think that this is a seven. Um, Brandon. When made works, it's, I think one of the best shows of the year. I think it's subject matter is incredibly dark and poignant and necessary. And the people who I've heard say like, Oh, this is a necessary step in conversations about, you know, domestic abuse and cycles of violence and everything. And I think that is all warranted. Like the best parts of the show really hit. And I think, all of that. I mean, not all of it, but a big chunk of it is due to Mark Qualley, who I really hope we're talking about Emmy's time. Like she deserves all the praise for this. She tackles Alex as such a well dynamic, as uh, such a well developed dynamic character. At the same time, it runs way too long. It really has holes in where it wants to go. It feels like there's something else coming up every moment, and not all of them are interesting. And for me personally, I can get invested in hour long dramas, not. A ton if, if the subject matter is not as dynamic as it should be, and this is gonna this can get really mundane and really kind of overly convoluted and again overly cynical really fast. Again, it's necessary, but it can be cynical. For me, it's a seven. It's solid. The good parts are fantastic, but again, I would just say unless you're really used to dramas like this, or again, if your trepidation is subject matter like this, took at your own risk. All right. So I with that, we'll go on to our, our next portion of this TV segment. So uh, Brandon's here to finish off Why the Last Man Season 1 with his review. So, uh, Brandon, I, I leave it to you. Yes. Why the Last Man Season 1, uh, potentially the last season of Why the Last Man Season 1. I really hope that statement from Liza Clark is true that they're getting a season two. I really hope so. Uh, but yeah, so we talked briefly about the first three episodes probably a month ago now, actually. And I... I remember being like, I really like this. And I read the first volume of the comic. I still haven't gotten around to reading the rest, but I hear it's fantastic. But I was really impressed by what they did with the show in terms of updating the material, in terms of updating it to make it more contemporary and dynamic and, you know, much more complex than I think the original was. And first of all, I will say it's a great series to binge. Like we're talking about Made and, you know, the kind of, you know, kind of slow burn of it all that it winds up being. This is not a slow burn. Like there's, three or four different plot lines, and I was fascinated in all of them. You know, we talked earlier, you know, the last time we talked about this, about, you know, the presidential storyline. It's maybe a bit too, you know, on the nose politically, but oh my God, it's fascinating. Like the back and forth between Diane Lane and Amber Tamblyn is so good. And there are problems that these kind of systems would actively face, and they only get, you know, more and more dramatic uh, as more and more things get unraveled. As another character who, again, if you have not watched the series, gets introduced to the play, who may or may not take a power grab from Diane Lane's character, 
that's all great. I was really fascinated by the story arc with um by the story arc with Hero, uh Wise Sister, and how she kind of get envelops with this kind of basically a cult figure played by Missy Pyle, who has this really kind of mystery dynamic to her. And we find out what it is, it's kind of hilarious. Like it's it's terrible, but it's also kind of hilarious where that character goes from the start up until where we find her. And I love seeing that thing of, you know, again, how people can be looped into power systems so easily when they are so desperate and when there's nothing seemingly going for them. Because this is a world where, you know, Diane Lane's character is very clearly, from our point of view, trying to reestablish the country and reestablish continuity. But the rest of the country and the rest of the world do not care. Like, they think she is behind all this. They think there's way too much going on. And so they turn to other people and they turn to, you know, disastrous characters and disastrous figures who will be worse for them, but they don't recognize that. And I love that kind of mystery, uh, that kind of mystery angle of it all. But again, it's the stuff with Y and Agent 355 that I think is the best thing. First of all, Ashley Romans is a freaking superstar. Like I said at the, I said last month, she's so good in this. She is a badass. She has such a great backstory. She has a really fun kind of dynamic with, um, with Y and also the scientist figure who now pops up played by Diana Bang, who is also great. And I love the kind of like, odd couple slash odd trio dynamic they've got going between them like it's very much you know i would very i would watch a whole episode as a road trip is what i'm saying like i would watch something like that they're just such fun characters i will admit their storyline kind of gets tied up at one location for about three episodes and that's not as interesting like they try to make it kind of interesting of like oh yeah like we're not gonna make a big deal that you're the only man left on earth like just come here and have a good time and you know reestablish your life i will also say what happens with Beth, uh, why is a strange girlfriend? It's fine. I think if there was a season two, like she would be a really fascinating character, but as is kind of, she pops up in the tail end of the season and that's it. Like there's something huge and we don't get anything about it. And I really just wanted more from that considering how long the episodes are. But from a stylistic point of view, it's gorgeous. Like I really like the shots that they were able to get out of this, specifically the last shot, which I see you, Eliza Clark. That's awesome. Um, and again, like, the gender politics of it all, the kind of, you know, worldly, you know, structures of it all that get explored through it. It's a series that knows what to do with its source material in ways that you are constantly not expecting, but are always welcome. So again, comfort for the performances, comfort for the source material, but stay for it, uh, but stay with it for what it has to bring. So if you haven't caught up on it, again, it's long, like it's only 10 episodes, but they're all almost an hour long. Definitely catch up on this. I had a great time with this and I'm praying for a season two where it goes. There you have it, folks, for Made and Why the Last Man, Netflix and Hulu, respectively. Um, check those out if you um, want to engage in some discussion. Always reach out on our social medias. We are at Plot Devices on Twitter. So it is our first week in November, and it's during this time that we like to cover anniversaries and revisit some of our favorites that have released during this month, 5, 10, 15 um, decades past. So, Brandon... Let's cut to your anniversaries. Uh, what movies are you celebrating from decades past? So there are a lot of this, and I think it goes to show you the importance of Thanksgiving as a movie release day holiday, because a lot of these were either Thanksgiving releases or right around there. Uh, and of course, limited releases with Oscar season ties everything up in a big old loop. Uh, for me, the ones that I wanted to talk about, uh, The Muppets celebrates its 10-year anniversary. Of course, James Bobbin's The Muppets, which we just talked about James Bobbin last week with uh, Percy Jackson. This was, if you are not, you know, a Flight of the Concords obsessive, this was the thing that put him on the map and put the Muppets back on the map. Like at the time, the Muppets were not really in media all that much. They had, you know, a couple scattered specials all that much, but they weren't, you know, on the focus as I think they should be and a lot of other fans think they should be. 
And this movie was delightful. It's so great. Like Jason Siegel and Amy Adams are just so great in this. Uh, the character of Walter, uh, who comes in as the new Muppet, of course, you know, with Manor Muppet, which I love this fact. Manor Muppet that year was one of only two original song nominees. And the only other one it was going up against was Rio. It was going to win either way. And I think it's one of the most hilarious Oscar picks of all time. But it, Muppets, as it was stands, is such a tremendous return to form. It's hilarious. And I love Muppets Most Wanted, too. And I hope we get to talk about that someday. Uh, I also want to talk about Casino Royale briefly. We talked, Noah and I briefly talked about it when we talked about uh, No Time to Die. And, you know, the conversations have been reviving it since No Time to Die's you know, reception, obviously. I don't think it can be understated how much this did for Bond, this coming from a guy who has not watched that much Bond, so take it for what it is. Um, but I love what this does for the franchise. I love how it makes it grittier and more complex than it really had ever been. I love how it introduces Daniel Craig's you know, incarnation of Bond as essentially an assassin beyond everything else and then allows him to develop more and more as the movie and the franchise go on more. And um, You Know My Name by Chris Cornell is easily one of the best Bond songs of all time. I've had it on repeat for the last two months. It's a bit of a danger. And last but not least, I want to mention Fiddler on the Roof, which I actually was able to watch about a couple weeks ago, knowing we were going to talk about it on this. You know, Brandon, how are you a Jew and you've never watched Fiddler on the Roof? First of all, shut up. Second of all, I just didn't. And I'm so mad that I waited this long because for as long as it is, it earns every second of it. The songs are legendary. The performances are really darn good. And I, coming from that background, I love how it explores, you know, the Jewish diaspora and the pilgrims, things like that. I think it's dark when it needs to be. I think it's optimistic when, you know, it is least hopeful. And I think that is such a part of that tradition, a part of that culture. So I respect so much of what Norman Jewison does with that. So those are the ones I wanted to discuss. Uh, Noah, over to you, because you also, I think, want to talk about Fiddler on the Roof, but what else? Yes. My small take about Fiddler on the Roof was just I watched the musical uh, very young, and it definitely contributed to my love for seeing um, all the musical elements come together in a uh, movie musical. So uh, glad you touched upon that one. That was celebrating 50 years. So the two that I want to talk about are actually both 20-year um, celebration uh, anniversaries. So uh, I'm 23 years old, so I definitely look to look at these two as like um, being influences for me and like my love for um, I'm going to be talking about Pixar and about, about book adaptations for movies. And so the two are Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Monsters, Inc. <laughs> so Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, who knows, this would introduce me to a whole decade of book to film adaptations for the Harry Potter character that um, was done so well that uh, I mean, there's not a single one that I think is unwatchable or that I think it doesn't deserve a rewatch. Even the, I was about to say one that I, I was about to say Goblet of Fire. Why? I love Goblet of Fire. Anyways. Um, <laughs> I don't actually, like I think, Goblet of Fire, but okay. <laughs> Order of the Phoenix is the worst one, except for the ending, just so everybody knows. Okay. What a hot take. Yes, I'll oh, that Brandon hill. and I um, are in shock. <laughs> I will die on that hill. We'll talk about it later. Um, and then Monsters, Inc., I remember being so young, bawling my eyes out. I love the emotions that they pull about um, a girl who attaches it to herself to her closet monster and... Um, I still just get chills thinking about the ending of Sully walking into Boo's room and spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> uh, Boo calling him Kitty and that touching my heart, no matter what age I watch that movie, it has um, such beautiful um, emotional moments that I think uh, I'll, I'll remember forever. So I, you know, who knows? Maybe I should check out uh, Monsters at Work, that new Disney Plus show. Oh, uh, my Sam, God. you got to check that out. It was good. so surprisingly good. I didn't expect anything out of it, and it was so good. Oh, great. Okay. Sam. Yeah, you got to check it out. So, sorry, I was going to say Monsters, Inc. Probably a film we're going to cover on directorial debuts because it was Pete Docter's first movie. Okay. Oh, wow. Uh, 
I've, I don't know about you guys, but I've been on a roller coaster in this segment from, first of all, Brandon, hearing that you've never seen Fiddler on the Roof surprised me, but also yep. didn't. Because when I think of movie musicals, I don't think of Brandon often. I just think of movies like you love movies, but movie musicals, I feel like has always been more my thing than yours in this friendship. Um, but I'm so glad you saw it. Fun fact, the Fruma Sarah scene actually gave me nightmares as a kid because I was a wimp. And so I, that freaked me out. I did not like that scene. And it took me years to realize that that he was doctoring that for his own agenda. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that, that that's what that whole scene was about. But anyways, the ones that I wanted to talk about, I'm actually piggybacking off of Noah a bit. With Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, I mean, it's the one that started it all. And it's very cliche to say that, but it's true. I mean, my love for Harry Potter knows no bounds. Recently, with J.K. Rowling, it's kind of soured on me a bit with with, with all the news from, from that author. But I mean, otherwise, the the world itself, I mean, it, it really was a part of a lot of my childhood and inspired me to really think outside the box a lot and kind of dream of this world. So I, I really appreciated for what it was in my childhood. And it all started with that movie as well and the books, too. Um, and for the 101 Dalmatians, most people who know me, I love 101 Dalmatians, the 61 animation from Walt Disney. And to see the live action version of it, I, I, I would go as far as to say that Glenn Close was born for the role of Cruella. I thought she was amazing in it. The movie itself is not fantastic. Its ratings are pretty low in general on the internet. And I, I say that the criticism is fair. It's kind of cheesy. But I mean, the cast is interesting. If you look back on it, I mean, you have Hugh Laurie and Mark Williams. Funny enough, you get a Weasley and Dr. House playing these two bumbling idiots, which I love. And then we also have Jeff Daniels, Jolie Richardson, um, who play Roger and Anita. It's just a really cool cast and puppies. Who doesn't love puppies, right? So, yeah, we have a lot of cool anniversaries to talk about here. And that um, I think these were our favorites. And I really love that we talked about those. I had the smallest comment I wanted to add, and that was Sorcerer's Stone also ignited my love for chess because I've always wanted my levels of chess to elevate to wizard's chess. But yeah, the scene of chess and Sorcerer's Stone made me go, I want to learn how to play chess growing up. And I did. I was in chess club in fifth grade. I'll defend it. Again, you know, Harry Potter's conversation is a whole another shebang that we can get into. But the reality is that the Harry Potter film series brought a ton of people into a literary world that does not often happen with film translated to book media. And so we always have to acknowledge that for, you know, whatever it is. I also just want to bring up The Artist, which is also celebrating its 10-year anniversary, the last silent film to win Best Picture, which I'm probably going to do an article about because I'm fascinated by that, uh, as well as Duel, which was Steven Spielberg's first movie that came out 50 years ago as well. I think it's kind of interesting that we've been talking about Steven Spielberg for 50 years now which is also just about as long as this podcast has felt. Thank you guys so much for tuning into episode 12 of Plot Devices. Listen, while we've got you here and, you know, this celestial madness and, you know, souvenir nonsense and whatever it is, while we've got you here, go to our Spotify and Apple podcast feeds, uh, Plot Devices Pod, that's Spotify and Apple Podcasts at Plot Devices Pod. Check that out there. Episodes come out every uh, Sunday late afternoon to evening, depending on when I get to editing them. But always check it out, you know, later Sundays, they will be up there again. Plot Devices Pod on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at Plot Devices Pod, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, primarily Twitter and Instagram, but again, all three at Plot Devices Pod. Check us out there. You'll get updates to all that as the week goes through. I want to thank my co-host for today. First of all, Noah Guzman. Noah, where can people find you amongst the cosmos? Twitter, I am at Noah's Plotting. And in the next week, actually, I will be doing anything I can to avoid the release of Clifford the Big Red Dog. Um, 
<laughs> and I will watch uh, The Harder They Fall so I can have a great discussion with my friend Brandon here next week. I feel bad because Clifford's getting such a bad rep already. Like everyone's just like, it does not look good. Why did they choose this? I don't think it looks that bad, but also Samantha and Corvaya tell people where they can find you. <laughs> I I have this attachment to Clifford because he was one of my favorite children's books when I was little. But anyways, that's a whole other conversation. People can find me and my Clifford rants at, uh, at S underscore in Corvaya on Twitter or on Instagram at Sam I am 520. Um, I don't have any reviews for the next week, but I do have tons of screeners because, as we mentioned, we're getting into award seasons now, and and this next week's going to be busy. So I can't wait to talk about all those upcoming movies with you all. <laughs> It'll be a good time, I promise. Yes, be sure to follow us on ASU Odyssey for a lot of content, and be sure to follow Sam's burner accounts at Clifford Rants. That's not true. <laughs> uh, you can, you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King Forty Five. I will have reviews for the Souvenir Part Two coming up this week, as well as Belfast, which Sam and I will be able to talk about next week. I hope Noah, you can get to it too because it's great. Uh, and then uh, next week is going to be a ton of stuff on the show as well. Follow my band at Killbox underscore Music, and once again, Twitter and Instagram at Plot Device Pod to get the show updates there as well. That'll do it for us on Plot Devices again, episode 12. For myself, for Noah Guzman, for Samantha Kobaya, this has been Plot Devices, and we'll tune in next time. Peace.